the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you've been my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Fifty days after Jesus Christ's resurrection, the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles, giving them power, purpose, and a plan. If you remember on the day of Pentecost, as we went through it, Lord enabled Peter to preach the gospel. And some 3,000 believed. Shortly after that, Peter and John were going into a synagogue and they preached and 5,000 males came to Christ. Just men. Stephen preached a powerful sermon as he connected the Old Testament to Jesus Christ. In the midst of his sermon, he rebuked the Jews for their hard heart. And they were furious. And they killed him. So Stephen became the first martyr of the church. Saul, if you remember, was there, and the people who stoned Stephen laid their coats at his feet. But Saul, too, was affected by the gospel, by the Lord, as he went from house to house, persecuting, imprisoning, but yet God converted him, and he was used by the Lord. Peter received a vision, went to Cornelius, and that was the beginning of the gospel reaching the Gentiles. As believers began to be persecuted, they preached the gospel wherever they went, and over and over we see that many came to Christ, some Jews, but more and more Gentiles came to Christ. One of the, the, I think, the outstanding things about preaching of the gospel was that there were lives that were transformed. People came to Christ. Too often today, I, I hear people, as they share about their background with me, I hear them say, well, I spent my whole life in church. I went to Sunday school. I went to youth group. I went to, to youth camp. But as I hear them talk and as I interact with them, it seems as if they never really heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, that gospel that transforms lives. How can you spend your whole life in church and not hear the gospel? How can you go to vacation Bible school and to camp and never really hear the gospel? Maybe. Just maybe they heard the gospel, but they didn't hear the gospel. I look back in my own life, as I've shared with you in the past. I came from an unsaved family. I would go to church on my own. I thought a ride. A lot of times I went by myself. I went to special youth things. I went to up to three vacation Bible schools in a summer sometimes. But looking back, I prayed that prayer, but I didn't really understand the gospel. You could ask me, I heard, I heard the gospel. I heard that Jesus Christ died, he was buried, and he arose. I had no question in my mind 
that Jesus Christ died for my sin. You see, I had some baggage as I went into church. Because my mom and dad weren't believers, they very strongly believed that salvation was trusting Jesus plus works. It's been many years, but I can still remember mom and dad saying, Now, Ralph, you can go to vacation Bible school over there at Central Baptist. Well, remember, we're Methodist. Don't believe their theology. They didn't say theology. They didn't probably know that word. Don't believe everything that you hear there. Yeah, I always thought, as I sought, that salvation was Jesus Christ, trusting Him, plus works. I think as I interact with people, there's another group of people that hear the gospel with the ears, but not with the heart. I never forget a young lady who grew up in Good News. She was talking with the elders. She says, all you, mean the church, all you guys ever care about was they didn't sleep around. They didn't go to already movies or they went down the list of these things. She said, don't do this. Do this. Don't go to this place. Go to this place. And as I heard that, it broke my heart. I remember her Sunday school teachers. I remember her youth pastors. I remember Wayne, Pastor Wayne preaching the word. We preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ alone saves. But this individual didn't hear it. Last week, as Curran preached, he reminded us that our neighborhood is changing. He mentioned the millennials, and he mentioned that many of them have never heard the gospel. And I'm sure there are some whose testimony is, yes, I've tried Jesus. He just didn't work. I remember when I came to Christ, it's a friend of mine, and I shared with him that I come to Christ, and he says, oh, he says, I tried, I tried Jesus. He didn't work. And I thought, does he give me hope? Some of these millennials and some of our families have tried to be good. But the Bible is really clear that we're not very good at being good. We stink at being good because we're sinners. Some around us believe trusting Jesus plus good works. I truly believe that as we share the gospel, if we are clear that there are people who are open to hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the middle of Paul's first missionary journey, he and Barnabas were sent out by the church at Antioch. Wherever they went, they preached the gospel. People were saved and churches were started. If 
eventually they made it back to Antioch. And when they got there, there's a strong disagreement going on. Let's look at Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Acts 15, beginning in verse 1. I've entitled the sermon, Grace Alone. Grace Alone. Because of the problems that were arising there in Antioch over the gospel. Verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way as they traveled to Phoenicia, through Phoenicia and Samaria. They told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, by the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had, been, had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Oof. Here's the question that's arising as the gospel makes its way from the strict Judaism, you can just imagine, into the world of Gentiles. For the Jew, their understanding, as they look back in the Old Testament, they were God's chosen people. God had promised Abraham that from him he would build a nation. They'd be his own people, his own possession. If you remember, Gentiles who wanted to worship the one true God had to go through the process of being a prostitute, being circumcised, required to keep the law, both ritual and moral. The ritual law, of course, required circumcision. Then there's those very rigid purity things they had to do, like washing their hands before they eat, washing before they went to worship. Of course, they couldn't eat pork, bacon, pork chops during the summer, sausages in the morning were out of the picture for them. Even beef that was cooked rare, no place for them. They ate nothing with blood. The church at Antioch, however, was majority Gentile. So you can see the tension that's arising. The argument being made was that these Gentiles must become Jews, must be circumcised in order to be Christians. But it says that after much discussion at the Jerusalem Council, Peter got up and he addressed them. He says, Brothers, you know that some time ago that God made a choice that the Gentiles might hear from me the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. 
he didn't discriminate between them and us, for he purified their hearts by faith. Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of their hearts, of, of, of the Gentiles, a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No! No! We believe it is through grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they're being saved. You see, they were trying to get to the bottom of this question. Is there anything that we must do for salvation beyond that faith that we're saved by grace? Is there anything that we need to add to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Do these Gentiles have to become Jews? Do they have to obey the ritual law? A second question had to be answered. If these Gentiles didn't have to go through that, how can we have fellowship together? How can we sit down at the table together if they're going to have a, a steak this rare? Or if they're going to have a pork chop? How can we sit down together? That's the question. And if they don't, how will we interact? How will it be true unity? Well, the question, is there something other than faith in Jesus Christ, based on grace, that's necessary? Peter's argument was twofold. First, he raises Cornelius. If you remember back in Acts 10, Peter had a vision, and he went to, Peter's, or to Cornelius' house, and he preached the gospel. And if you remember, the Spirit of God fell on the family, and they... They were saved. There were no rituals that took place before they were saved. Peter didn't say to Cornelius, you must be circumcised. He didn't say, get that ham out of the oven. He didn't say, unless your steak is well done, you'll have no part of the kingdom of God. By faith, Cornelius was saved faith alone. The first argument then was there were no rituals where Cornelius got saved. His second argument, are we really asking these Gentiles to do what we as Jews have been unable to do? We haven't been able to keep the law. Our fathers haven't been able to keep the law. Why don't we expect them to keep the law? See, the Mosaic Law was not given to us that, or to them, that they might be saved by keeping it, but that they would understand, as they couldn't keep it, that they needed a Savior. The Ten Commandments say, you shall not murder. But Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, says that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hell. I remember years ago, there was this church, this Baptist church in Texas that was having a problem. One of the men, one of the members was beating their wife. 
they went to the guy and they confronted him, he did it again. I think it was two or three times. It's been years. Finally, these deacons took this man behind the barn and they beat him up. Now, he never beat his wife again. I don't think that's the way that we should handle things. I don't think they were necessarily alone in that approach. If you remember Nehemiah in the last chapter of Nehemiah, he got upset. He was so passionate. He pulled the hair out of him. He beat him with a stick. He cursed him. So sometimes in our passion and our, our righteous anger, we kind of lose that. You see, we're sinners. And if we're saved, we're saved by grace. The Ten Commandments says you shall not commit adultery. But Christ again at the Sermon on the Mount says that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful heart, a lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his own heart. We've all coveted. The Bible says not to not covet. I could agree with a man who said this. He said, there are times when bad things happen to people, and I'm tempted to think they deserve it. And then there are times that good things happen to people that I think that don't deserve it. Then God shows me my heart. You see, we're sinners. We need a Savior. I'm guilty and you're guilty. We fail because the law was designed for us to fail. The law was never meant to be a way for salvation. Rather, by missing the mark, by falling short, we would see that we need a Savior. The ritual law was not much different, very strict. Well, Peter's first argument, Cornelius saved by faith. We're being saved the same way as they are. His second argument, our fathers couldn't do this. We couldn't do it. Why should we ask them to? And Peter goes on and he says, God has already saved Cornelius. It's been ten years. It's been ten years. This Gentile was saved. And we're arguing whether God can save someone? Good point. Well, after Peter finished up, Barnabas and Paul joined the discussion. And verse 12 says, The whole assembly became silent. As they listened to Barnabas and Paul tell about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. They testified of all these cities they had been to and all who had come to Jesus Christ who had been converted. The Judaizers, however, were arguing that the Gentiles must become Jews. Paul and Barnabas are saying, No! 
No, they don't. They don't because they've already been saved. And we know they've been saved because we are watching them. And they are the ones who are taking the gospel to other people. We see God working in and through them. They go on basically to say, this is kind of foolish to even be talking about this. Then James, the half-brother of Jesus, the head elder, the person who is seemingly overseeing the Jerusalem council, begins. And he says, brothers, listen to me. Peter's described how God chose him to share the gospel with the Gentiles. And he goes on, he quotes the book of Amos, chapter 9, where it says that the prophets were in agreement with what's happening. And he goes on and says, says, The rest of mankind beyond the Jews seek the Lord, even Gentiles, even Gentiles, who bear my name. See, God was doing what he said he would do all along. So James says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are coming to faith in the Lord. So the first question is solved. James argues that because God said from the beginning, Gentiles will be saved. We know that from proof that this happening, we know that every tribe, tongue, and nation would come to Christ so we're not going to ask them to become Jews but still that second problem there's still that second problem how are we going to sit down at the table with one another how can we fellowship with one another how can we have real unity what if things similar for you and I, and I believe they are in different ways. What if the things that I eat and drink at the dinner table cause you to feel uncomfortable? Maybe the things that I eat will make you what you would see as unclean. How would we eat together? As I was thinking about different things and different ways that this might take place here, I I, I thought about um, wine. There's some of us who like a glass of wine. You really enjoy a glass of wine. You open it up and I hear you let it breathe. I'm not sure what that is. Some of you even have this decanter that, and I've seen it, pour the wine into the decanter. And it breathes and it makes it taste better. Right? But you love it, but maybe say I'm an alcoholic who's come to Christ. Add to it my background of being from Alabama. Bill, I don't know about you, Bill was raised in Mobile for a little while. Around me, Christians didn't drink alcohol, not even a glass of wine. So I have all this baggage.
see, you're well within your biblical right to enjoy a glass of wine. And maybe you may like beer. And you're within your rights to enjoy a glass of beer. There's nothing biblically sinful about it. Nothing. There may be wisdom in not doing it. You see, what if you sit down at the table and you have that freedom to drink a glass of wine, but your brother doesn't? You can drink that one glass and put it aside. But your brother, he drinks that one glass, and that one glass turns into two glasses, and two glasses turn into three. Pretty soon it's a bottle. And he wakes up the next day and his car is parked in the middle of the street, or you name it. Knowing that, do you still put your bottle of wine out? That's the question. That's the question. The Jews viewed blood as a defilement. So it wasn't just defiling the Gentiles who was eating it, but it also defiled them being around it. So how could these Jews gather with the Gentiles who were eating this meat, this pork, I'm sure in their mind it was disgusting to have pork on the table. How do we solve that? This freedom that we have. I'm sure back then the the Gentiles loved their bacon and their ham on special occasions. And their pork chops, which I'm sure they grilled during the summer. And maybe when they didn't have pork, the men loved their steak rare. With a little bit of blood. But you see, for the Jew, that was a no-go. That was a no-go. For James' decision, we see in verse 19, he says, So my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them a letter and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating meat from strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in the synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. See, this is a picture of Christian unity. James isn't trying to force a ritualistic law on the Gentiles. He's saying, brothers and sisters, as he talks to the Gentiles, Don't do anything that would rob your fellow brothers and sisters of the joy of your company or the joy of being able to worship the Lord together. Think about the Jews. He would. If he said, for generations, 
generation after generation after generation, every Sabbath, they'd heard no blood, no fork, down the line. Do you think automatically they're going to say, oh, I think I'll have, I think I'll have a pork chop? No. See, in our minds, things are ingrained in us, and it's hard to change that thinking. In verse 22, we see the response of the Jerusalem Council. was to send representatives to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas to report the decision with a letter to the Gentile believers asking them to do the things that they would mentioned, abstain from sexual morality, but also to stay away from anything connected with idols, not to eat meat that had been strangled or it has blood. Verse 28 says that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. Later on in the chapter, it says that as the word went back to the Antioch church, there was joy. They were encouraged. How do we apply this to our own lives? First, regarding salvation, I don't think there are many churches that are saying we need to be circumcised. But there are definitely churches that add to trusting Christ. It may be through giving, through being good, that moralistic behavior, or going to church. Some might say that you must speak in tongues. But see, all this is faith plus. We need to respond to these in the way that Peter did to the council, saying it's through grace of God. We're saved. The second issue of Christian love. It's one thing to keep the gospel pure, free from any corruption. There's another thing to be willing to compromise on non essentials. Paul, if you remember in Antioch, he confronted Peter when he stops eating with the Gentiles. It was quick. But at the same time, he wanted to keep that unity between the Jew and the Gentile. Maybe we can summarize all these into two basic principles. First, as we live under grace, we shouldn't make requirements of others that are non-biblical. How we dress, the standards that we think are proper, personal taste, music preferences. We have a way of worshiping God here, but we go over to Covenant Presbyterian, be a little bit different. If you go to the south side, be a little bit different. If you go down to Birmingham, Alabama, churches to support Chris and I, they use an orchestra. A little bit different. We shouldn't put our preferences people. Howard Hendricks, who was a man loved by people at Moody and, and those who, who knew him, he was a prophet at Dallas Seminary and died some 
few years ago, but he remarked as he thought about this legalism, he says, I grew up in a home where the use of fingernail polish on women was enough to condemn them to hell. He said, I repudiated the legalism intellectually and theologically in 1946. This was in 1982. And he says, in 1982, I'm still, but I'm still wrestling with it emotionally. I'm still wrestling with it emotionally. That's 36 years. These things that we think are important that God doesn't say, we should leave them alone. The second principle is, because we're free, we should gladly restrict our freedom for the sake of others. I'm sure back then, if James wanted a rare steak, which he probably wouldn't have, but let's say Cornelius he wanted a rare steak, and he was with James and some of the Jews, I think he would probably refrain from eating that rare steak. Let's pray and we'll move toward communion. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that it's alive, that it's active, it's powerful. We thank you, Father, that your word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, your spirit transforms people. Oh, Father, may our hearts and our lives be transformed as we hear your word. Oh, Father, if there's anyone here today who has never put their faith and trust in Christ, Father, we pray that you, through your spirit, might convict them encourage them to put their faith and trust in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. But the man would come forward and begin distributing